0: Is
1: Rotten Tomatoes Wrong about The Phantom Menace, Star Wars Episode 1? Shout out to Alex Rooney, our fan who suggested the movies, a member of the Ketchup crew. The tomato meter is 52% rotten, and the audience score is 59% rotten, and our certified guest has some thoughts about that. But before we bring him on, I want to quickly mention for the next three weeks, we're going to be covering all three of the Star Wars prequels, episodes 1, two and three, obviously starting with Phantom Menace today to celebrate May the 4th. So happy May the 4th and May the 4th be with you to all those listening, our beloved catch up crew and to my incredible co-host Jacqueline Coley. Jacqueline, it's Star Wars. Can we say it's Star Wars month, even though it's just really May the 4th and then possibly Revenge of the 5th?
2: I mean, they've had enough. Do we have to give him a month. <laughs> At this point, with as much as has happened, I'm I'm working really hard to get enough gumption to give him a day. So be thankful for your day. Star Wars doesn't get to be the bride who's like, it's my month. No, you get a day. I like we're Star giving Wars... you a month because that's who we are, and we know that y'all care. But Star Wars itself, right. this is not for you. This is for us.
1: Yeah, well, I feel like May is the perfect month to at least celebrate Star Wars, if not have the entire month dedicated to it, because this was the month where the original Star Wars came out in May 25th in 1977. And from there, it just became this thing that was always in the the cultural zeitgeist. Here to four from a galaxy far, far away and a long time ago into whatever the future holds for Star Wars. We're here to celebrate a little bit of it. We have a great guest that is going to be joining us for that. And before we get to our esteemed guest today, we want to intro the amazing. She's a producer, but she doesn't go by the title producer nay. She prefers Producey Lucy. Good morning. How is the household? Is the force strong where you are?
2: The force is the strongest it's ever been. I watched the movie last night. I'm feeling excited about this episode. So I made cupcakes. I think you can, for those that are watching, you can see some of them on my table. (laughs) I wish I could share them all with you, but I can't. I'm sorry.
1: Oh, man. We were dissecting the term fun fetty with our guest before we went to air and weather. The name Fetty itself already implies fun, and if fun is just an extra hanger-on for no reason, but maybe we'll let him explain that at a later date, because right now, it's time to talk about the Phantom Menace, and for that, we welcome our very special guest, who is a good buddy of mine. He is a hysterical comedian, performer extraordinaire, and he's a writer for Adult Swim's Tig Tone, and eventually, if not at his own behest at his friend's demand he will publish a coffee table book full of his sunset martini photographs you can catch on instagram joseph scrimshaw is here hello joseph
3: hello there mark thank you i'm so happy uh, i'm happy to be here and talk about the phantom menace or cupcakes whatever you want <laughs>
1: That's the best thing about Joseph. He's very good at pivoting (laughs) wherever our whims might take us. Joseph, my question for you to open this thing is very simple. Did you camp out to get tickets to see The Phantom Menace?
3: I had a friend who actually camped out for me. Uh, I was living in Minneapolis at the time. And it was a deal like one person could camp out for four people. uh, So he camped out for me. But then we showed up at the theater for the midnight showing at like five o'clock. And um we all sat in the floor in the lobby. It was like a hostage situation, except there was nobody there with guns because everybody wanted to be there. Um, and there was one guy in particular who had organized the line and he had been waiting the longest and he stood up and gave this maniacal speech about how he had been studying for years about the perfect seat for this film. And if anybody tried to take his seat, he would murder them. It was this great start <laughs> to the intensity of Phantom Menace.
1: Yeah, it was sort of like a welcome to the new age of Star Wars where fans get a little demanding from time to time. I actually have my own theater uh, story that I remember fondly with my friend slash nightmare. But we'll get into that later when we talk about all the behind the scenes and the hype and the hoopla surrounding the Phantom Menace. In the meantime, my question is simple and it goes to Jacqueline Coley because Jacqueline, I want you to attempt the task of telling us. What the hell is The Phantom Menace about?
2: Yeah, so The Phantom Menace, on top of an incredible cash grab that George Lucas said for decades he didn't wanna do, against his better judgment, he finally, in 1999, almost exactly 22 years after his original series debuted in theaters, gave us the prequels, and the first one being The Phantom Menace. So here we go. It starts with trade routes in the opening scrawl. So we knew we were in for a great one here, kids. So what it is is Qui-Gon Chin and Obi-Wan Kenobi, before he is a Jedi Master, when he's just uh, training, He is they are attempting to go and figure out why there's a trade blockade on Queen Amidala's planet. What exactly is going on with that? The Federation, which is sort of, sorry, I should say the The current republic is at the highest level that it is at this current moment. They have senators and Amidala has been tasked with the idea of pleading her case to them as to why they must intervene in this trade dispute. On the way to figure out what happens, Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi get ambushed. It turns out that the person pulling the strings is a Sith Lord, which, spoiler alert, we figure out later, is Senator Palpatine, who is also pulling the strings for Queen if it sounds like If it sounds like there's a puppet master behind the entire plot of this movie, you've got it, because there isn't a plot much on top of that. On the way back from the sort of, I would say, invasion where they're trying to get back to the Republic and tell them what's going on. Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan Kenobi crash land on Tatooine where they meet a young Anakin Skywalker who is actually smart, has tons of midichlorians, which, you know, George Lucas wrote us a way out of, you know, the Force being this all-powerful sort of zen-like <laughs> thing that runs through all of us. And now it's just basically little nanites in our blood. Find out that this guy is probably the chosen one. Qui-Gon Jinn says, yes, we need to train this boy. They take him back to the Republic after an epic pod race where he frees himself from slavery, abandons his mother. That one's gonna come back to roost. When they get back to the Republic, the Jedis are like, not this one. There's something wrong with this kid. We don't think you should train him, but Qui-Gon is convinced that they should. In doing so, Queen Amidala reveals herself to be Natalie Portman. And she, again, gets sort of like, I guess falls in love with Anakin a little bit. They become friends after she was uh, sort of masquerading as a slave girl. In the end, Qui-Gon goes up against the Sith, Dark Sidious. They get into an epic battle, in which case he dies. And Darth Maul. Darth, Darth Maul. Maul. Did I say Dark Sidious? Sorry, my bad. Darth Maul. Darth Sidious Maul. Is, his,
1: is, his, uh, is his master.
2: Yeah, that's right. Darth Sidious <laughs> is the master. Sorry. Darth Maul, with his <laughs> two-headed freaking lightsaber, fights Qui-Gon Jinn, doesn't win. And then, and then Obi Wan Kenobi does fight him. He does win in an epic battle of duel of the fates. Then they make him a Jedi master, and he reluctantly takes up the idea of training Anakin, who will eventually become, huh, oh, man, Darth Vader. That was a lot. You made that it. Was so much, and I know and I went. That's a kids' movie, and that's a kids' movie, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, lots of trade. There you go.
1: Okay, mm-hmm. I noticed. A tone during some of your synopsis. (laughs) So I'm going to come back to you. But first, our guest has the floor. Joseph, the question is simple. Like I said at the top of the show, currently, The Phantom Menace sits at 52% rotten on the tomato meter. Is Rotten Tomatoes right or wrong about episode one?
3: Personally, I feel it is incorrect. I feel that is too low. Uh, I feel it should be more like in the 75 to 80%. Um, I'm sure we're going to talk about some of the critiques. I, I do agree with some of the critiques. Uh, personally, I love the film, and I think there is a lot for people to enjoy if they can set aside some of the critiques. Uh, in particular, here's my my pitch. Mark, you know me. I can't stop talking about Star Wars. So if you need to, just say, Joseph Scrimshaw, shut up. I'll try to keep this <laughs> short on my pitches. Um I think this is the most expensive indie film ever made uh, by a weird auteur. This is obviously in our world, it's a blockbuster, but this is exactly the weird personal film that George Lucas wanted to make. It is half this adventure serial with this epic space fantasy action scenes. And it is half this modern myth with this very specific morality, this very specific lesson that it's trying to impart. And For me, a lot of the power of it is that lesson. I think that lesson is really contained in Anakin's line of, mom, uh, you say the biggest problem in this universe is no one helps each other. This film is really about greed versus having empathy, kindness and working together in order to have the greater good of not being selfish, but rather being selfless. You got the greed of the Trade Federation. They just want more money. You got the greed of Palpatine. He wants more and more power for himself. You have the greed of Watto and the Hutts. And then on the other side, you have all our heroes. You have the Jedi who are trained to be selfless. You have this string of people who find each other. And even when they think they shouldn't be valuing each other, like Padme shouldn't value Jar Jar. And uh, nobody thinks that Qui-Gon should value Anakin. Everybody sees the value in one another. They come together as a whole to actually resolve the problem of the invasion of Naboo. And this theme gets repeated again and again. The, word, the fact that the word symbiont uh, uh, pops up multiple times is not an accident. It's the point. The point is that the Gungan and the Naboo are a symbiont circle. They are attached. They do matter. And the point of the midi chlorians is that... No being is just a being by themselves. Everyone has some connection to the larger galaxy, and the midichlorians are a symbol of that. And I think this is a very timeless uh, moral, a very timeless lesson, but it's extra powerful to me in general, because I think we have a temptation to sometimes just be out for ourselves and just be worrying about number one. And this is a film that says you will only be doing well if your entire community is doing well. And if the institutions that are supposed to be helping you with that, like the Senate and the Jedi Order and uh, all sorts of different organizations fail you, then what can you do as an individual to help the people next to you? That's the phantom menace to
1: me. I If, if I wasn't so lazy, I would be standing up and giving you a round of applause. Not because I necessarily agree with every point you made. <laughs> But man, was it well-structured. Jacqueline, I, I, neither one of us want to follow that. I will simply say that Rotten Tomatoes, I think Rotten Tomatoes is right with, with the score. I I love parts of the movie. There's other parts that that really let me down. And I think that while Joseph is dead on with a lot of his themes, with what George Lucas was trying to capture, I feel like it's one thing to say, this is what the movie represents and this is what the movie's trying to do. But the actual practice and execution of making a great film I think failed some of those lessons. And so where you can take away and teach a class about the Phantom Menace and what it means, you can also say, okay, well that is just not really great filmmaking in certain parts. So I'm right there with Rotten Tomatoes is dead on with 52%. What says Ms. Coley?
2: Um, it's fine. Yeah. 52 sounds about right. Or 59. I think for me with the Phantom Menace, when I went back and watched it and when I went back and did the research with it is this was the first toe dip into the very dark path of what happened when fandom, social media and entitlement reached sort of critical mass. And looking back on it now, I wish we all were a little bit more uh, referential on what sort of, path the hell we were paving by allowing a group of people who felt that they owned something rail against it and really cause a lot of damage and so for me personally the film's score is just like a footnote to the havoc that it really wrecked not just for george lucas but like there was real human cost the guy that voiced jar jar binks you know came out later and talked about how he you know, contemplated suicide from much of the early 2000s. Um, The kid, uh, Jake, uh, talked about how it basically kind of ruined his childhood. And looking back on it now, the fact that a lot of people who are my age now back then were the perpetrators of this because of anger, because people wanted to make a movie they didn't like, is just absurd to me. And so, yeah, sure, Rotten Tomatoes is right. But there are so many bad actors in this that I don't think have come to reckon with the, the real like human cost that they they put forth. And so this whole franchise now for me kinda has that. And there's only a few blips on it that I can even look at with any monicum of of happiness. Obviously uh parts of the original and you know that feeling that I had watching the The Force Awakens, but absent of that, there's just been so many casualties and so many bad actors that I'm like the score, sure, Rotten Tomatoes is right. Or or they're not, but it doesn't justify any of the other stuff that came along with it. So I'm really being very political with that, but basically to say that like, ugh,
1: It's a little like what uh, Yoda says in the movie. He says, uh, Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to the internet. And it also has <laughs> given us a lot of job opportunities. So thanks, internet. Just be nicer to Star Wars, in particular to the people who are working hard to make it. So before we get into our scenes that highlight how we feel about the movie, whether we love it, feel meh about it, or some scenes that really disappointed us, and that could happen with somebody who loves the movie, who has a scene that let them down, or somebody who doesn't like the movie, but man, that one. One scene was awesome let's go to tim ryan our expert review curation manager for our segment
0: two minutes with tim hit the music
2: two minutes with tim
0: there are many reasons why star wars from 1977 is considered a classic it's a straightforward hero's journey and it has some of the most dazzling special effects ever captured on film but above all what made it so great for so many people was the characters. When The Phantom Menace came out in 1998, there was a sense among critics that it had a bit of a split personality in the sense that it was an attempt to appeal to kids of all ages, but the plot was bogged down with exposition and the characters were substantially less memorable than the original trilogy. But all that said, even the detractors had to admit that it looked amazing. It's at 52% on the Tomato Meter with 233 reviews, and it's also got a 59% audience score. It's the second worst-reviewed live-action Star Wars movie, one point ahead of The Rise of Skywalker. So what did the critics have to say? In a rotten review, Joe Morgenstern of The Wall Street Journal wrote, What I can't comprehend is why the political details had to be so tedious and abstract. Will the kids of our nation and the world truly be titillated by trade wars and the spectacle of a do-nothing Senate? However, in a fresh review, Joe Hollerman of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch wrote, The movie is fun for the most part, and several scenes are as good or better than anything Lucas created in the original films. The human characters, however, are not nearly as interesting as those in the earlier episodes. The Rotten Tomatoes Critics' Consensus says, Burdened by exposition and populated with stock characters, The Phantom Menace gets the Star Wars prequels off to a bumpy, albeit visually dazzling, start. So yeah, The Phantom Menace. It's a Star Wars movie that got mediocre reviews. But what do you guys think? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Tim Ryan is really (laughs) taking the ball and throwing the option right back to us and saying, uh, y'all handle the blitz. And so (laughs) let's get into it. We, We know where the critic reviews are. And I'll tell everybody this. We are going to talk about individual scenes in the movie and what we feel about those. It is so hard to avoid just talking about how we felt in 1999 or even in 1997 when the special editions came out and we knew that a new Star Wars trilogy was on the horizon so we'll try to save as much of that as possible for the behind the scenes talk right now we just want to get into the scenes of Phantom Menace that illustrate why we feel how we do about the movie let's get to movie scenes do we have music for that Christian That's like some peppy Cantina Band stuff right there. So I want to give the floor to our special guest, Joseph Scrimshaw. You gave a great, overwhelmingly positive, (laughs) but also in-depth synopsis about why you feel the way you do about Phantom Medicine. These are the kind of things that I hear people like you talk about, and I say, I need to go back and give this movie another chance. I watched it again last night. My feeling since maybe 2000. Eight has not really changed on it all that much. So give us a scene which really illustrates to you the greatness in this movie and maybe that shows off some of the, the, uh, the through lines that George Lucas intended us to see.
3: Yeah, I, this was really hard for me because I could do almost any scene. There are a couple that <laughs> I would uh, be a little bit more critical of. But the thing that I really wanted to pick is basically the the four-pronged uh, finale, the battle. Uh, you have the lightsaber fight, right? That is, of course, often the thing that people like that. Okay, but the lightsaber fight was awesome because if you're the kind of Star Wars fan who wants a little bit of... um little bit more edgy or a little bit more to the Sith and the badassery, uh, you have Satan Guy with double-bladed lightsaber having an amazing <laughs> fight with utterly charming Ewan McGregor, right? Uh, in really, really different choreography from the original trilogy. So people really love that. Uh, but then you also have the space battle. Uh, You also have Padme uh, storming her own palace uh, with blaster fire. And then on the total other end of the spectrum, uh, you have uh, Jar Jar and the Gungans uh, bravely fighting, uh, but with brave fighting that also contains uh, slapstick, in which Jar Jar's crotch, whatever exists there, we do not know is wounded in the battle, right? I mean, you have the absolute extremes of what people (laughs) love and what people don't like about this film. And I think for me, why I picked those scenes is, I think it illustrates both the things I said at the top. I think it illustrates Lucas as an indie artist who says, I know you grew up with the original trilogy, people who are seeing this in 1999, and I know you want this list of things I don't care. I want to tell you the story that I want to tell. And that includes everything from an awesome lightsaber fight to a fun physical comedy that reminds you that Jar Jar is a a total innocent who is being extremely brave in this scenario. And Lucas knows that, okay, I'm going to get pushback probably, but this is the film that I absolutely want to make. I don't care if other people think that it, it's got some weird tonal shifts. To me, this is my film. The other thing about it is the, the plot of the film definitely does have, I think, uh, kind of two, two threads. It's got the invasion of Naboo, which is the main thread, and then the thread of uh, will Anakin be trained? Is he the chosen one? All that stuff. And this is really that moment, these four battles together, that shows all these different people coming together for this common good. It is not right that a corporation, a corporation, that has representation in the Senate has invaded a planet. This is basically Amazon in our world just decided because they don't get enough money. Nobody should be able to go in and out of Maryland and they can't, the Senate won't act because Amazon has two seats in the Senate. Uh, I understand that sometimes people don't like the trade stuff, but that to me is what's going on. And this is the, those four battles are all these different people, different perspectives, different needs, different wants coming together to end this injustice that the Senate can't and won't because it isn't functioning anymore.
0: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder
2: mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best... To let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmoviecom wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com/ wondery.
1: You know, it, it's so fun to listen to you, A, because I do have trouble even now deciphering how dense it's by far the most dense three paragraphs of crawl text of any Star Wars movie, in my opinion, is when The Phantom Menace kicks off and you're like, you were so hyped to get in there and you're like, oh, okay, there's going to be some homework here. But at the end... What I love about what you said, Joseph, is that there's so much to look at. And it does what the classic Star Wars movies did, too, is the climax of every classic Star Wars movie has multiple things sort of going on at the same time, or at least in A New Hope. You had Luke and Leia trying to escape the Death Star at the same time. You had Han and Chewie mistakenly charging towards a bunch of stormtroopers, <laughs> which became a lot more stormtroopers with the special editions. So you always had those like, okay, this action's going on here. Then we pivot back to this action here. And the highlight of anybody... I think for Phantom Menace, Jacqueline, is going to be the lightsaber fight that does happen between Darth Maul and Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan. I remember I had a teacher in high school who was a little angry at Star Wars because she just thought that the the lightsabers were phallic representations of the men using them. And I remember thinking, oh, come on. that's And then and you see Darth Maul light is double side, You see the other side come out and you're like, oh, yeah, that might be a... Um, That might be a phallic thing after all so it's such a cool fight though and like joseph said it is such a leap forward in terms of choreography and what we had seen in star wars up to that point so is that maybe a scene that also makes you feel a certain way about the movie
2: yeah i mean the duel of fates which is the epic music that plays underneath um the darth maul uh qui-gon Gen, and then eventually with obi-wan kenobi fight scene that moment is probably one of the greatest moments in Star Wars. In fact, I think that the cut that Topher Grace did where he cut the prequels into one movie that actually made kind of sense. And it was like interesting and you enjoyed it. From what I believe, I think he starts it there. Like he doesn't even like go through the entire movie. He like starts it pretty much right there. He doesn't even include the pod racing. So and a lot of people actually said that that movie, if you watched it, which I think it's somewhere about 320 total for all of them um is actually quite you know clippy and and moves and and really interesting and shows that you know topher grace is a quite accomplished editor anyway that to me says what that scene really sort of does i absolutely adore john williams there's a reason why he is one has been nominated for more oscars than any composer in history and is still going strong um and i think it's an illustrative moment of how music can power incredible fight choreography as well. Like, it's just one of those incredible blendings of, I think, great film movie making. And for that, I can't really say that anything is terribly wrong with this movie altogether. Um, the the actor um, who who did the, the fight choreography with that one, also um, Ewan McGregor talked about how long that he worked to get ready for that scene, not just the emotions behind it. But the thing I love about that scene in particular Qui-Gon Jinn dies um, up against a very formidable opponent. if you remember from the scene, he actually is meditating before he goes into that epic battle. And that is the way of the Jedi. That is actually the the way the Jedi should embark on it to find peace, to find serenity, to find balance in a moment before you go into this uh, action. Um, But Obi-Wan Kenobi, actually, the rage and the grief that he feels from Qui-Gon being murdered is what allows him to defeat Darth Maul and that is against what the Jedi would actually believe and so it's already I think positioning this story in a way that doesn't always vibe with the mythology and I think that is a part of the Phantom Menace and the entire prequels which because George Lucas created them borrowed them uh whichever you want to say um <laughs> <laughs> He felt that he could break the rules in the same way a classically trained pianist when they play jazz is going to break all of the rules that they learn. But you have to know the rules inside out to know where to break them. And I don't know if George Lucas respected his own rules as much as other people because he'd lived with them for 20 years. He'd lived through decades of interviews and people talking about them. And essentially him knowing that that was gonna be the first line of his obit, no matter what else happened is, you know, this is the guy that created Star Wars. And so it was almost like a part of him like his finger and you can't really look at your finger with the reverence that somebody else would. And so when he was breaking these rules like he did in that scene, even the times when it worked, if you look back, if I look back on it now, it's nonsensical. And I don't necessarily think that when you add all of that up, it makes it. And also on top of that, because of the thing that George Lucas has always done, which is plots are minimal, style is maximum. That doesn't always work when people have been waiting for 20 years. They want a story that they're invested in. And He was invested in it, but not necessarily the fans.
1: I remember the movie going experience and just thinking like, oh, now I actually have to sit down and watch a movie. Like, it didn't matter what the movie was. It was, (laughs) you're just so excited to be there and you've been waiting so long. And now it's like, oh no, I still have to just sit there and have this story told to me for two hours. And so... My favorite part of Duel of the Fates is actually, I mean, seeing the doors open and seeing Darth Maul, uh, you know, ignite his lightsaber is pretty awesome. But it is in that moment where Obi-Wan, I don't know that we're breaking, at least in my opinion, I I never saw that as breaking the rules of the Jedi. I saw Obi-Wan sort of tapping into, you know, towing the line of the dark side. I look at the dark side sort of like the field of dreams out of bounds, where if you step over this line, you become old Moonlight Graham. (laughs) <laughs> and so, I Luke Skywalker had towed that line many a time, including in the colactic, you, you know, uh, the climactic clash between him and his father in Return of the Jedi. And then seeing Obi Wan, where you have those like that, those like weird force fields that, that come up every so often. Seeing Darth Maul just pace back and forth. And just staring down Obi-Wan is just so cool. And seeing Obi-Wan just summon, really, he's trying to summon rage. He's trying to summon anything that is not just blind fear. Obi-Wan's just basically trying to not poop his pants. So I think that the Force is cool. It's like, hey, if you got to go a little to the dark side here just to defeat this guy, just make sure you don't crap yourself before you defeat Darth Maul and you cut him in half. But the scene that that really, I still think about... Go ahead, Joseph, please.
3: Can I real quick, uh, before you get into your scene, can I offer an opinion on on Obi-Wan's level of uh, rage and or uh, need to poop his pants? Uh, Yeah, for me, I feel like and it's totally uh, as Obi-Wan Kenobi himself would say, I consider it a point of view thing. I don't think this point of view is right. I think it's my point of view. My interpretation Mm -hmm. of that scene is he is tending toward the rage, which isn't good that he is acting out of you killed my master. I want to kill you. And the choreography looks cool when they spin and flip, but it leads him to a vulnerability. And it is that moment where he is pressing in with anger on Maul and Maul gets the best of him and gives him the force push and he flips down. And I think he takes a moment when he's hanging there. And that's where he becomes a Jedi in that moment of he is calming down and he is thinking about the environment and his surroundings. And Maul isn't. Maul's just slashing at him, mocking him for having fallen. And Obi-Wan only wins because he does what Obi-Wan always does when he wins, which is he calms down and becomes more aware of the environment. He remembers that Qui-Gon's lightsaber is sitting there. And I feel like when he actually defeats Maul, it's because he has calmed down and is being more Jedi-like.
1: Okay, to um, sort of illustrate both sides of the force, then, I think one of the scenes that fascinates me from a canon standpoint and also wowed everybody back when we saw it in theaters was the Padre scene that I didn't know Topher had cut that out of his cut. Topher Grace made this like epic cut of the prequels that Jacqueline was talking about. And he would just like invite his friends over and show it to them. And they're all like blown away. I did not know. The Padre scene wasn't in that because the Padre scene was just this leap forward in visual effects and the way it looked and the way it moved. And, I remember seeing that scene and just thinking this is just so technologically impressive, but it also felt more like a video game than it did a movie. And so I'm just thinking in my head like, okay, I remembered all these stories of George Lucas and his buddy Steven Spielberg, particularly making Jaws, being handcuffed by the lack of technology obeying to their command and watching that scene and thinking, okay, well now George literally can do anything he wants whenever he wants to. Is this necessarily a good thing? So you talk about the power that a Jedi or a Sith has where they can make stuff float and they can influence people's minds. The same could be said about George Lucas when he has all of his toys readily available to him whenever he wants is what are you going to do with that power? And with the Padre scene in particular, it's thrilling, it's fast paced, it's adventurous, but... That was the first time in watching The Phantom Menace that I, I felt like I might be seeing a Star Wars movie because the opening felt a little stiff and it almost felt like maybe we as the audience were nervous or maybe the actors are just settling into the roles. I don't know when they shot those scenes, but it felt very early in the shooting process where it's like everybody's just, oh, crap, we're making another Star Wars. The pod race, that was the one where you just kick back and you have that experience that my parents would tell me about that they had in 1977 when you see this new movie and all of a sudden, holy God, these letters are giant on the screen and you <laughs> see this giant Star Destroyer invading the entire shot and it's just a new cinematic experience. That's what the Padre scene represented to me. And I have a feeling that that was the first scene that George thought about when he saw what his buddy Steven was doing making the dinosaur movie movie. Jurassic Park in the early 90s, where he saw the technology that was now available. And he said, oh, I can now that's what I call pod racing.
2: Yeah. (laughs) It's funny, too, Joseph, that you mentioned that this is an indie filmmaker who got to make a big budget film. And I do agree with you on that. But the one thing I will say, and 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 Shyamalan has talked about this. A lot of people who moved quickly into big budgets talked about this is Independent films or films that are limited have limitations by budget oftentimes breed incredible invention. That, you know, M. Night Shyamalan going back to split and really going down to a micro budget forced him to become innovative again. And, you know, folks like you know, Quentin gets a lot of stuff for Death Proof because it was not necessarily something that other people thought to the caliber of his other films. They're <laughs> wrong, by the way. But he liked that moment of going back to his independent root days, going back to like Reservoir Dogs, where they're spending most of the time in one room. And I feel unfortunately with George, it was the other way around. He was an independent filmmaker, completely unbeholden um, to scope or that much oversight, really, because the executives have been begging him for decades to make it. And so when he made it or agreed to make it, they were very much like, here's money. Just go do it because they knew the marketing, the toys, the global um, sort of hype that they could put into this would be enough to make them billions, which they were right. And so they really didn't, I think, get too much into his kitchen. They couldn't probably because of the agreements he probably made to even come back to it. He got final cut. He got to you know have the stories that he wanted, not a lot of studio oversight. And as much as studio execs get, I would say, in trouble or people like to blame them for poor decisions that they make, the thing that doesn't get talked about is how many decisions or silly decisions they prevent from happening. You know what I mean? And, and people don't often talk, directors don't often talk about the exec that told them, hey, don't do that um, because it's gonna ruin your movie. And then they don't do it and it works out. They're really quick to be like, well, I wanted to do this <laughs> and change it. So there's a part of me that just wonders with, with George, if, if it was too much power.
1: Yeah, I want to hit on that in in, in the behind the scenes, which we're going to get to in, in just a second. The... The last thing I'll talk about really quickly just to get y'all's take on it is that relationship between Anakin and Shmi because that's another scene that really spoke to me that that actually made me emotional watching it and still can to this day. Not the least of which reasons is because every time I drop Molly the Wonder Dog off at her daycare and she goes into the other room, I think about when Anakin says goodbye to his mom and and she says, go Anakin, go and never look back. And I And I want Molly to never look back because if she sees daddy there, she's going to say, why isn't daddy coming with me? And I just get I get emotional talking about it. It what is if y'all could just answer in a sentence before we move on what is the scene if there is one in the phantom menace that will emotionally stir you like that. Um
3: it, uh for me it is the scene that you're talking about. Um And I think, you know, in terms of the subjective film of like whether or not it it works for you, I think that's a great debate. But I I feel pretty strongly that everything that Lucas did, whether it was a good idea or a bad idea, was incredibly intentional. And that scene is one of the ones that's not only emotional for me, but really reminds me that every piece is here for a reason. Uh, Because if you break down everything that Shmi says in that scene where, where she learns that Anakin is free... Those are the themes of Star Wars, in, in particular, the prequels, uh, which she tells An- when Anakin says, I don't want things to change. And she says, you can't stop the change anymore. than you can stop the suns from setting. That's like a huge lesson of Star Wars is you have to accept that you can't control and fix everything. The attempt to control and fix everything is what leads Anakin to the dark side. And when she tells him, hey, this path has been placed before you, you choose. It's another big lesson. We all choose our destinies by our actual choices, and then that line that you're talking about, Mark, when she says, "You know, no, uh, don't look back." It's like you can't obsess about the past. You have to accept what has happened and move forward. So, not only is it a beautiful little emotional scene, but it's me basically being like, "Awuga, awuga!" If my child remembered what I had said to him, he would have not fall into the dark side.
1: And there's also might be me talking to Star Wars fans like, hey, why don't you just let like, go of the past and let us tell exactly some don't look back here. to 1977. Um, <laughs> just move forward. <laughs> uh, Jacqueline, anything in Phantom Menace uh, before we uh, we move on here that that, that gets you in the uh, right in the heart region?
2: Not so much in the heart region, but definitely an emotional moment. Um, first of all, shout out to Kira Knightley for being the best stand in <laughs> ever for Princess Amidala uh, and Natalie Portman. I always love that little behind the scenes thing about that one, but when Natalie Portman sort of like owns up into to herself and she's standing in front of the Republic Senate and she's saying, hey, I need your help. There's this incredible moment when she realizes that they won't help her. And she sort of just like holds it in. And like, there's like that little girl sort of like, you know, realizing that the machinations around her are bigger than she is. And to your point and what everyone's point says, in that moment, she has the evil puppet master in her ear saying, see, I'll fix it for you, sweetie. I'll fix it for you, sweetie. And... And she does what he asks. She she asks for a vote of no confidence and then sets in motion the wheels that will eventually bring down the Republic. There's a different movie that can be cut where Princess Amidala is the biggest villain of the Star Wars universe. <laughs> so just let me know. Let me know when you guys are ready for that one because I'm ready to go ahead and tell that tale. But in that moment, I really felt for that character because she was being manipulated, we now know why and and essentially where all of these things were going to pay off. But it was, I don't know, I felt for her as a young woman standing in a room full of mostly men or whatever the equivalent of men in the galaxy ended up being and, and realizing her helplessness. And I really saw Natalie Portman, you know, future Oscar winner in that moment. I saw it in The Professional, but I really kind of saw it in that moment. And she's one of the characters that, um, honestly, when I look back on the prequels, I get really sad about because they got the biggest short shrift um, as far as the material didn't live up to their abilities. And Ewan McGregor is the other one. And so when I look at both of those characters, sort of like big moments, him when he lets the rage come in him and the the sort of like just uncrippling grief that he feels when Qui-Gon gets killed, um, I'm like, man, I'm really looking forward to the Obi-Wan series so that these actors can get what they were due because everybody who signed up from this from Samuel L. Jackson down did it just because they love Star Wars. And it's a shame that unfortunately due to some stuff we'll discuss later, it's sort of like a happy memory that has just an incredibly bad hangover, right? It was like a fun night to go do this and get drunk and like, let's go make a Star Wars movie. And the hangover, whew,
1: awful. All right, let's talk about the hangover and let's also talk about the excitement leading up to that party with our next segment behind the scenes cue the symbols yeah it might have worked out better for amidala of the senate that day if she at least brought some Reese's pieces she could have won the et vote <laughs> if no one else that day because you can see et et is canon in star wars and i think it is fun so Let's look back because 22 years have gone by. If anybody wanted to feel old, there you go. 22 years since The Phantom Menace bowed in theaters on May 21st, 1999. Were we too harsh on it at the time. Was there any way to not be too harsh on it at the time? Or did we have blinders on? I'll just say for myself, I had blinders on to this movie for a long time. I would just kind of blindly say, yeah, my favorite movies are Star Wars. I go classic trilogy and then Phantom Menace right behind it. And it was almost like in my own head, I had this congressional hearing where I just kept putting it off for years and years and years. Then I finally had to have that reckoning with myself where I love Star Wars. I love a lot of the lessons contained inside Phantom Menace. And there's some great scenes, but Overall, as a movie, I just don't think that it works nearly as well as the classic trilogy. And it's it's a tough thing to actually rectify that. But now that you get to say it, you you feel the sigh of relief like, oh, OK, I can at least be honest with myself. But the reason why I always look back on The Phantom Menace with a giant smile on my face is because I think about that time in the world of a Star Wars fan, where we didn't have new movies for so long. We had to read our Star Wars in the 90s, (laughs) if you can believe that, listeners, and then, 1997 rolls around and George Lucas we had heard rumblings but this wasn't the age quite of the internet it was around but we didn't have like movie scoops being broken all the time so you knew that they were re-releasing the original trilogy in theaters and there was going to be some new scenes and I love the new scenes the fact that they're canon people debate it to this day I love seeing them in the theater and the reason why is because it meant that George Lucas was tinkering that George Lucas was getting back in the gym. He (laughs) and his effects team were starting to work on stuff and they were getting their fighting reps back to make a new trilogy. And we should have known then.
2: We should have known then.
1: Seeing Jabba seeing even changing yub which which again is it a crime against ewoks and humanity possibly but it meant that we had new stuff coming and we just wanted new star wars movies and so getting to that theater i camped out a little bit to see to get tickets i mean i, I was ready to camp out for as long as i had to it turns out it didn't have to be that long at the amc 24 in hampton virginia but um I'll just never forget the optimism around that time and the fact that the movie didn't live up to the hype is sort of an afterthought for me. Um, Joseph, overall, now that we are two decades later with this movie, are we too harsh as critics, as fans of Star Wars on The Phantom Yeah, I mean, I
3: think that some of us are. I mean, I'm a big proponent of uh, we can discuss uh, structure and we can discuss, you know, uh, did, did somebody go too far? All, all these kind of things. But I think, I think, Art, in particularly Star Wars, is very subjective. Uh, and for me, I always want to have respect for that. But then I also want to be kind of aware of my own journey. Uh, so for me, in 99, I was thrilled. I, I lived and breathed this. Uh, I, I had a ton of criticisms of the film, a lot of the common ones. And it was just so thrilling to me to have Star Wars. I would be like, I would get together with my friends. I'd have beers. We would go, run down the list of, uh, Jar Jar said, squeeze me. That's a Mike Myers joke from Wayne's World. This is BS. We hate this. We'd run down the list. And then I'd go to Target and I'd buy all the action figures and I'd eat at Taco Bell so I could get the stuff. And I just loved living inside Star Wars. And now for my own, my own personal journey as somebody who grew up with the original trilogy, I think that this was the definitely the beginning of something where we walked into a film with a bunch of our own expectations. And for myself, uh, this is the journey I went on, and I think some other people who grew up with the original trilogy, I because I had my list of things that I wanted to see, it stopped me from seeing what was in the film that I now have come to love. The fact that this is a film, like I said, about uh, empathy. The fact that uh, the original trilogy is about, uh, you know, uh, rogues and people who are kind of, uh, besides uh, uh, Leia, uh, people who are outsiders. And this is a film about the people who hold the power. It's Jedi Jedi and politicians. Uh, So there is this whole political story that, like, that's the point of Star Wars. George just hadn't got around to it, but that was always the point, And then the other side of it was I grew up with, you know, loving Empire Strikes Back the most because that's the one where Luke's dad cuts his hand off and then goes, oh, by the way, I'm your pops. It's dark. And I wanted dark brooding <laughs> things. And I forgot that Star Wars is silly and fun. I forgot the jar jar of it. So I had these bits of baggage of like Star Wars isn't about taxes. Star Wars is about cool fights. And when I set those things aside and, and said, oh, maybe that's what I decided. And it's stopping me from seeing what's there. Then I enjoyed what's there a lot more. The other thing I'll throw out is an experience that I've had being able to uh, do a Star Wars podcast and hear from people. Star Wars is so generational. And there are people who grew up with the prequels. A lot of people who grew up with the prequels who didn't have any of that baggage They don't see anything wooden. They just see a movie they love. You know, people look up to Padme. Padme is a great inspirational uh, figure. Um, Thought Jar Jar was hilarious. Some of the first time they ever saw some of those classic comedy bits. So it's always important for me to remember it's generational, too. It's about what you see first is oftentimes what you love. That goes for James Bond, Star Wars, Doctor Who, Star Trek. A lot of times the first thing you see, that's what it should be. And then you carry that with you.
1: Joseph checking all of the cool pop culture boxes there. Jacqueline, do do you remember having that perspective in 99 where you walked into the Phantom Menace, then you walk out and you say, oh, okay, expectations, hype, people angry, they didn't see what they wanted to see. This is how we will now look at movies heretofore in the age of the internet.
2: Well, so if I recall correctly, this one came out... Like high school, either sophomore or in between my freshman and sophomore year, like I, I think somewhere around there is when it came out, and I was way more interested in camping out for In Sync tickets <laughs> at that time. Um, I like to call it the four-year hiatus. When I got to co- when I got to high school, I realized very quickly being into musical theater and comic books was not <laughs> a ticket to anything. So I sort of put all of that stuff away for a while, and I actually did not see the Phantom Menace in theaters. I saw it. When it came home, like I rented it from Hollywood Video and I was like, oh, this is this is cool. This is interesting. But I remember being like, I don't care as much about these people as I should. And when I went back and reckoned with it and the reason why I'm OK with the 52 percent, and I'm like, yeah, that's about right. And 59 percent is about right. It's somewhere in the middle. It's a pretty much mixed bag is I realized what the fatal flaw in is it for me is I'm a person who likes character turmoil. I will take a good character piece over anything else. And I just look back at the original series when you have Luke sitting there staring at the two sunrises and the binary sunset um, music comes underneath and you can feel him saying like, I love it here, but I want to go further. That is some musical theater there. It's his I want song, (laughs) even though there's no words. He wants to leave (laughs) this place. And growing up in a small town in Texas, I wanted to leave. (laughs) And I understood Mm -hmm. every ounce of that. There was not that. There was there was some of Anakin saying, I don't want to leave my mother, and so I got that. But there was no want to be a Jedi. There was no, like, I want to touch greatness. There was not that. He knew he was touched with great ability, but there was not that yearning within him. There was not the internal conflict that you would expect to see with Padme when she knew this is what her people needed, but she also knew what she was doing was destructive. There was none of that. Everyone just seemed to be doing what they were told because the plot was not as important. The character struggle was not as important. And if you really sort of look at the characters, even the most complex character with Darth Vader, there is no internal conflict within him until you finally see it. When he says, Luke, I'm your father, he's saying it more of like, you don't even know, Heifer. Listen, (laughs) you know what I mean? There's not this like feeling of like, I'm your father and this is going to be difficult, but I want you to come with, there's none of that. And I feel like that's the part. There's no agency and there's no internal character conflict. And that's the part of it that feels like this beautiful, well-painted, elaborate, incredibly masterful, craftful, empty shell. There's just not enough underneath it for me to really grasp into from the characters. I'm a character person. I know there's plenty. I'm not saying that there's none. I'm just saying there's not enough. And there were so many little like breadcrumbs. Can to I offer a,
3: a different I, I think, uh, point of view that mostly agrees?
2: He's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> both a different okay. point
3: of view and uh, and I agree. I think that there is something in the filmmaking and like for younger people who grew up with it, I, I, I've i heard from them that they just don't feel it. But it, what you're describing is, is what I felt when I saw it and some of the things that, that I think it didn't resonate with me. I think the character uh, motivations are absolutely there. They're literally stated and, and the actions are there. But there is something in the filmmaking that uh, when I first saw the film the, the first several times, I didn't feel it the way you're describing. I didn't feel it the way I felt uh, twin sunsets. Right. You know, I didn't feel it the way I felt Leia's eyes when she realized that Luke was hanging there on Bespin and they had to go back. You know, the, the original trilogy is this emotional film. But what's happened for me, good, bad or otherwise, because I love the ideas even though I think the emotions are not painted as richly in the prequel, I feel them now because I think they are there in the structure and they are there in what the characters say. And I've gotten past that for myself. But I think I totally understand uh, where you're coming from, where on film it is not as as rich.
2: Yeah. There's and I will say I was just say just to, add to that I agree with you, too. I just wanted to add to this thing. George Lucas is an incredible world builder and he is incredible at setting up these these places that you wanna get lost in. But if you look at the original trilogy, he had a lot of help from some other people who I think were better storytellers. And I think that's that part that you talk about, whereas in now the memory and the ambition and what they were going for is more there. And, And it's to your point, you're right. The motivations are there, but they're told. They're not, what's the word I'm looking for? they're expositionally stated as opposed to giving a narrative structure that allows the audience to come to the emotion. That's the difference between. I look at
1: it like a temperature. Like, I I think that it's just a lot colder in in the prequels. And our expert researcher, Mark Hoffmeyer, sent us this great interview that George Lucas had done with, ironically, the magazine called Empire. And by the way, Mark Hoffmeyer uh, also pointed out in our research packet that he sends us every week, he does a great job with it, that Deep Blue Sea also made a lot of money in 1999. There you go, Mark. There's your plug for your beloved shark movie. Um, George is saying in that, that he never really fancied himself a good writer of dialogue and he never really cared about dialogue that much. And I just wonder if he felt like that back when he was writing and working on the classic trilogy, if he felt that strongly about it, or by the time he got to the mid nineties, when he was working on Phantom Menace, that he just had resigned himself to say, oh, okay, I'm just not going to worry about dialogue. But I think maybe if, if we're being too harsh on the Phantom Menace, maybe instead of being too harsh on it, we just laud the original trilogy that much more because when you go back and watch any other science fiction movie from that era it it Star Wars so easily could have been that. And I don't know why it wasn't, to be honest with you. I I don't know if it was just the effects or if it's our actors are just that much better or George Lucas was that much better of a director slash story because Kirshner and Marquand did the, the next two movies. But there's just something that's magical in the classic trilogy for me. And maybe it is for younger generations, also evident in the prequels, but the one thing that, that will always put a smile on my face that I do feel that Star Wars magic with is the first trailer for The Phantom Menace. The teaser trailer that was attached to the movies, the classics, Meet Joe Black and the Siege around Thanksgiving 1998. I got to tell you all the story because I also feel like this movie was the reason why trailers made, it, made their way online and it's why records are still being set as the what's the most viewed trailer on YouTube in a 24 hour period. I was in college, I was a freshman in college in 1998 and my roommate Chad was this tech whiz guy and I didn't really know much about the the, the technological world and it, I was in one of my other friends rooms, maybe we were drinking, we were underage, I won't you know, say what we were doing, we were having some fun he comes and gets me, and he says, "Hey, I, I got to show you this thing because he knew I was a big Star Wars fan." This is like mid-November, and he brings me back into our dorm room, and he's got the, There's this little tiny box on his computer screen with the green background. It says the following: previous proof for, and it was. I think it was. It might have been pirated. It was a pirated footage of the the trailer for Phantom Menace, and he hits play on it, and I hear the Star Wars music, and I see those those words. Every generation has a legend and all of these and I'm like oh my god is this it and I hear Darth Vader breathing and then boom we're in and I couldn't believe I was seeing new Star Wars I didn't know this trailer was coming out I had no idea and it blew my mind and to this day it's my favorite trailer that I have ever seen for a movie it just got me to that next level and it will still get me going the trailer experience of Phantom Menace was not only great for fans, but it was also a revolution in how to promote movies on the internet.
2: Yeah, Uh, the Internet's infancy alongside The Phantom Menace is what is great and also horrible about it, (laughs) if I'm being really honest, because, yeah, it was the trailer. um, It was also message boards. Like, do y'all remember the early days of message boards? Early days of message boards were what Really lit the fuse <laughs> that brought down George Lucas. If we want to go ahead and quote a little JJ or paraphrase JJ from the um, from the second trilogy, um, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it, it is. Or that was Ryan actually because that was uh, Last Jedi. Anyway, um, it's really interesting because the early "ain't it cool" sort of you know blogosphere, you know the guys sitting at home thinking that they knew better. Uh, is what happened because of the Phantom Menace. And I remember going to a comedy show with Brian Posner, which, Mark, you probably know. Posein? Posein, I'm getting his name yep. wrong. Thank you, I Posehn. do, yeah he's, yeah, yeah. he's
1: very funny and very, very huge metalhead and very big <laughs> Star Wars nerd.
2: And a very big Star Wars fan. I saw him in Austin where he talked about uh, the Phantom Menace. And this was like four, maybe five years ago. And he was just like, I can't talk about The Phantom Menace. Too much has happened. Like, he's like, sort of like the y. I am with Justice League. He's just yep. like, it's my Vietnam. I can't <laughs> go back. That, that was funny at the time. And I remember thinking it was great. But I was also thinking, I was like, this is like a 45-year-old dude still talking about a kid's movie. Like, it literally hurt his soul. And looking back on it now, I can't help but be like, I don't know if this was a good idea to allow us all to get sort of wrapped up in the like, you know, let's dunk on George Lucas. There was a Clerks episode where they put him (laughs) on trial from the Clerks animated series. I mean, there was literally an entire international pylon on George Lucas, the kid that played Anakin, um, and Ahmed who voiced uh, Jar Jar Binks. I still to this day cannot look back at this movie without just getting sick to my stomach at all of the casualties that came after after it because we let everybody just run away with their rampant sort of hatred and just sort of vitriol and allowed them to say whatever they wanted because they felt that they owned Star Wars. And it was the marketing companies and the toy companies and everybody that allowed us to put Star Wars on T-shirts and all of this stuff that allowed us to think that we own it and we don't. Disney does
3: yeah and and just to (laughs) throw it out there you know uh, Ahmed Best you know voiced it too but but voice Jar Jar but also you know absolutely revolutionary uh, mocap you know you don't get uh, Gollum you don't get a lot of things uh, without uh, the the advancement uh, made at least partially as a performer by Ahmed Best
2: yeah performer and and even Andy talked about this When you're the performer in those early stages of this technology, you're becoming a fifth operator in a lot of ways. Like there's the the visuals and then there's the camera and then there's the post-production and the the director and the script. You were like an extra piece to that puzzle, not just in performance, but literally trying to tell them, okay, this works, that doesn't work. This eye line for him doesn't work. You know, this was back when they would wear the little (laughs) head so that he could be as tall as Jar Jar and so that the eye lines would be correct. All of those little adjustments that that they made as performers on set, because he was physically on set voicing it, which was also a shift. Prior to this, whenever they had a voiced character, that person would not be there. They would be on camera, sort of physically embodied by just some regular stand-in and the actual voice character would be filled in later this was one of those first early iterations of that. And yeah, it's, it just makes me kind of sad, it does, because um, this was the, the beginning of, you know, people feeling that they could rail, and you know, this, you can make a direct line to this, the people, you know, doing the backlash against, you know, when John Boyega took off his helmet, you know? Yeah. And, and from then 99 until now, 20, it's been 20 plus years, they are just beginning to reckon with the power that these studios have and the responsibility that they have to check fandom when they go too far, and, and not it was the just first with, time yeah. that
1: you heard that, that you heard that that phrase like you did this to my childhood. It, it was like you're attacking my childhood now. Which, again, in retrospect, it's fine to not like the Phantom Menace, and I probably said a lot of things about this movie. Uh, over the course of the two decades it's been out that I would like to take back, but it doesn't give anybody the right to you know, bully Jake Lloyd or Ahmed Best or be a troll about it. You can still not like the, You can hate the Phantom Menace, but but still have respect for the for the care and the performers that went into it who it's not their fault. Whether you, whether you love this movie or hate it. Yeah, it and ain't I think this
3: part. ties into a lot of my, my big picture things about why I really love it and, and why I talk about it as a an, an indie film that is a massive blockbuster because a lot of these ideas are the ideas that Lucas has had truly since the beginning. Lucas gives lots of interviews here and there where he uh, you know, contradicts himself about where he, when he came up with a certain idea and all of that. But this is really just been there for a long time. There's a great book called uh, How Star Wars Conquered the Universe that walks through the whole history of Star Wars. Really great book. But even if you don't want to read a whole book, you can go grab your copy of the original novelization of uh, Star Wars that came out before the actual film even did and read the prologue where it talks about a fallen government that would uh, destroyed the republic from inside because of greed and hubris it's like the the origins of this story are you know from the very beginning so i think for me when i really realized that that's what also changed a lot of my thinking because we've got all this energy of exactly what you guys are talking about where well fans didn't ask for this that's not our star wars george lucas doesn't understand star wars like that's the story he always intended. He just never got around to telling it now. And that just in your mind just totally flips the like, who who is the creator of something and who's the receiver of
1: something? Yeah. Right. And shout out to our buddy uh, Chris Taylor, I believe, who wrote uh, How Star Wars Conquered the Universe. See, I know how to read books as long as they're you about Star Wars. You have a Star couple Wars, behind you, sports, too, right? Or Van Halen. <laughs> I can read those three types of books. We got to wrap up shop here on behind the scenes. What
2: books do you have behind you really quickly? Because I don't want folks that haven't visually seen us it's, not it's know about your Star great Wars, Star Wars setup.
1: It's it's the art of Star Wars, The Force Awakens. So it's really a picture book that has a little bit of words in it. And then that's the only book. There's a Star Wars puzzle. There's an unopened box of Magic the Gathering third edition revise, which is my retirement. And then there's a bottle of Rowdy Roddy Piper bubblegum soda and an R2-D2 toy and a little pop toy that apparently is what my niece looks at when she sees me. That's that's her representation of Uncle Mark. So uh, (laughs) take that as you will. Uh, Joseph, Jacqueline, where, very quickly, where does Phantom Menace rank on your all-time Star Wars list if if you have that at your ready? As far as your favorite Star Wars movies, where does Phantom Menace rank? For me, it's on the lower end of the scale, um, but I would say it's my second favorite prequel. (laughs)
3: Uh, I, I, I'm not ranking them anymore. Uh, cause I think ranking is like a, it is a fun conversation, uh, to have and, you know, just shooting beers. I, I will, I will, uh, I'll rank them, uh, for like fun, but in terms of action,
1: you can text yeah, I'll, me. I'll text you, you yeah. but
3: ranking them for me is just personal f- a favorite. Or if it's Tuesday, uh, this mm-hmm. Tuesday, Attack the Clones is my least favorite. Next Tuesday, it might be my most favorite. This is the a part of a nine-part story, and in, in particular for the prequels, this is act one. It's all a part of the whole thing. And I think that's probably where I get more emotion from them, even when I think the filmmaking doesn't do as good of a job delivering the emotion as it probably should. I get the emotion, because when I'm hearing Shmi say... You know, you can't stop the the change anymore. than You can stop the suns from setting. I'm thinking about Revenge of the Sith. And he's like, think about that with Padme. You have to accept that things might change, kid. And I'm feeling the power of it because it's not just one movie to me. It's a part of the
1: whole story. It's a very, okay. very good answer. And I'm going to take that as Return of the Jedi is your favorite <laughs> Star Wars movie. <laughs> Whenever I'm talking to you, Mark Ellis, uh, it is. Je- <laughs> Jacqueline, you got it. You got it. You're ready. Uh, by the way, Joseph gave a great answer that we should probably adopt. Uh, but if yeah. you have the the numbers handy.
2: Well, I'm not going to give you the whole ranking because honestly, I don't even look. Th- this is the thing. The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi tied for me now because I did love The Last Jedi less than The Force Awakens in the like succession of me watching them. By the time we got to The Rise of Skywalker, I was pretty upset with J.J. I'm still pretty upset with J.J. If I'm going to go ahead and be honest in that movie. And so it's all shuffled around. The one thing I will say is Rise of Skywalker is my very least favorite Star Wars movie. It still had enjoyable moments in it, though. So I can't really say anything other than that. And The Phantom Menace is somewhere in the middle for me. I, I definitely just do not have the intense emotions that other people have with this movie. Also, spoiler alert, I actually like Attack of the Clones. There you go
0: spoiler alert, like when we do Attack of the Clones,
2: people are going to be very (laughs) upset with the fact that I actually like that one because it had the sweeping romance, which was not something we really got in the Star Wars movies. And the romance novel head in me loved that. Hey,
1: from your to our podcast listeners ears, all I say about Rise of Skywalker (laughs) is after one of the screenings, I am so thrilled that I got to enjoy a beer and celebrate it with Joseph Scrimshaw and his better half. That was a good lunch at California Pizza <laughs> Kitchen. Shout out to them. So uh, there, 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 we, we could talk about the behind the scenes on The Phantom Menace, the making of it, the hype, the backlash afterwards. Uh, but we are going to move on to our mailbag segment, if we have some music. This is from esteemed member of the Ketchup crew, Jimmy Phillips. Jimmy Phillips emailed us, as you all can do anytime. RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. That's RT is wrong at RottenTomatoes.com. And Jimmy writes, esteemed podcasters, I would much appreciate an episode on the topic of Peter Jackson's The Hobbit trilogy as a Tolkien aficionado and a person who wrote his thesis on the Neo agarian politics of Tolkien's The Simmerillion. I am
2: Nerd.
1: deeply I am a deeply passionate <laughs> lover. Of Middle (laughs) Earth. I can't talk. I got the magic of the gathering box behind me. I'm also an apologist for these movies, which I believe do justice to Tolkien's story, translating what is a book for younger children to the big screen with style and substance. I would happily consult on why this book is faithful to Tolkien's story and his larger mythology of which it was not initially part of upon its publication, and why the additions to the story are not mere flights of Jackson's fancy, but crucial additions that prevent characters such as Gandalf, Radagast, Bjorn, from simply being uh, ghosts in the machines and trying various narrative threads together. I'll just add, the complaints I've heard about the errors of the movies, by and large, come from people who have no deep understanding of the universe and fail to see the forest for the trees. But I'll admit some of the CGI is bad, and they may be, maybe, Could have been two movies. Best, Jimmy. Thank you, Jimmy Phillips. And I mean, that's all we want here at Rotten Tomatoes is wrong is every kid. I don't care if you're if you're writing an essay in fifth grade or if you're doing your college thesis, if you're working on your doctorate, make it about movies because damn it, that's more fun than anything else going on in the world, isn't it? Oh, God, I, I I hate having to wrap up a show like this where I could talk to my friends all day about stuff in a galaxy far, far away. But I have a quick trivia question, which, by the way, Joseph Scrimshaw, I have maybe seen him miss three Star Wars trivia questions in my entire existence. Knowing him, he if you're ever at a bar and they just have hey, Star Wars trivia is coming up and you look down at the corner of the bar and you see Joseph Scrimshaw, just walk away. <laughs> it's not going to end well for you. So, Joseph, thank you so much for joining us here today. Before I give the trivia question to the floor, um, what are you working on right now? Where can our folks who enjoyed today's episode go check yeah, out Yeah, you can always
3: uh, find me on Twitter and Instagram at Joseph Scrimshaw. If you uh, like my, my, my Star Wars thoughts, uh, you can check out the podcast uh, that I do uh, with my friend Ken Nabsok. And uh, Jennifer Landa is also a founder and joins us uh, when she again She is raising two young Padawans, so she's not always on Force Center. But you can check out the podcast Force Center. Uh, just Google it there. And then uh, for my non-Star Wars adventures, uh, this Adult Swim show that I work on—it's a weird fantasy comedy show called Tigtone—and both of the current seasons are streaming on HBO Max. So if you've watched all eight hours of both uh, Zack Snyder Justice League and Black and White Zack Snyder Justice League, you can then check out Tigtone.
1: Boom. Well, there you go. That's a great streaming recommendation from Joseph Scrimshaw for everyone as well. Joseph also has a podcast called Obsessed, where he has guests come on and they talk about what their obsession is. Jacqueline, I had the luxury of doing Obsessed. Can you guess what my topic was? Van Halen. You are correct. Joseph, do you remember what I scored with my obsession? I
3: I think I rank it on uh, up to 10 and I think you were a nine.
1: Thank you.
2: Oh, if you ever you want to do one on Bill the, Hader and invite me. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, I would. Yeah. I heard a little bit of concern in Joseph's voice when he said, I think you were a nine, which is, <laughs> we might want to get that cholesterol down a little bit. Yeah, Jacqueline would be great to have on there as well. Um, your Star Wars trivia today is actually the title of a track in the soundtrack for episode one. Can either one of y'all name the ridiculous spoiler that is contained in the episode one soundtrack that, by the way, was released five days before the movie came out. And so if you bought the CD the day of, like I did, don't look at what the songs are called because that's going to give away multiple spoilers. Can anyone, Jacqueline, I'm gonna let you go first because I'm pretty sure Joseph knows the answer.
2: I think he knows this, but I think I know this. Miss, I never know the name of anything, because by the way, in case you haven't known, listening to this podcast, names are the thing that my brain doesn't keep. It's Qui Gon dies, right? Qui Gon's funeral, Qui Gon's yeah. noble
3: end, and yeah, yeah is noble the one end. track. Yeah, and then the but funeral. it was that
2: he died. Yeah, yeah. like yeah, Qui
1: Gon's noble end. And I remember that might have been the first time. Well, he something asked what the spoiler
2: was, and the spoiler was that he yeah, died. Yeah,
1: that's the right? yeah, that's actual it, spoiler. It, yes. It,
2: I'm like shmo down. I know you people are sticklers for bullshit. so. so.
1: <laughs> Jacqueline, you are awarded full points for that. You and you and Joseph are a formidable team, and your manager Lucy did kind of cheat by by also weighing in. But but Lucy, you're correct too. So you, Lucy, you Yay. get points as well. Points for everyone. I'm a benevolent judge of the down on Rotten Tomatoes is wrong
2: anyway. I was going to say, was it Anakin and Padme hook up? But I remembered that that didn't happen in that movie yet. So yeah,
1: that would have been a whole uh, that would have been (laughs) charges pressed.
2: Can we also talk about how they still like, you got to get married before you can bone in Star Wars? I do not understand (laughs) that. Like that is the one thing about Um, the Star Wars. The the in-house Catholic here. Also, the fact that Shmi had some sort of like virgin birth which, you know by the I'm way, saying?
3: I've been thinking like, about that a lot because when we're talking about spoilers, because the book also came out before the film and I was working at Kinko's at the time. I was an assistant manager at Kinko's <laughs> and my boss was like, my manager, who is a huge Star Wars fan, was like, uh, can you make a hundred of these on P4? And uh, also, I guess Anakin doesn't have a dad. I've been reading the book anyway. And this was like days before the movie came out. And it was like oh, my boy. Kinko's manager spoiled this movie for it.
2: Oh, I know. Yeah, I totally I I didn't forget about that, but I totally forgot about that. Yeah. For being like this advanced republic with like all kinds of craziness, they are still very much about, you know, ring before you bone.
1: (laughs) Yeah. um, (laughs) Did you ever think that maybe that's why they have spaceships a long time ago in that galaxy? And we have barely now we just have cars that don't run on gasoline because we're too busy boning before merit. Maybe it's a good thing. (laughs) Maybe, it's, mean, a if thing, you can maybe get it's a good thing. Maybe
2: it's a good spaceship thing. Spaceship, as you're like joy ride oh, out, you're coming back with children. I'm sorry. I am.
1: <laughs> approaching middle age and I might have to buy a X-wing as my midlife <laughs> crisis vehicle. So, for this week's episode of Rotten Tomatoes is wrong, huge, huge thank you to our dear friend Joseph Scrimshaw. Joseph cannot wait to talk more in or out of the world of Star Wars because I know you have a lot of great <laughs> opinions about, to quote a Star Wars character, a great many things. So thank you so much for joining us here today. And big shout out to the newest member of the crew, Brian Perez, everyone. Brian Perez is going to be helping us engineer some sound and some other things. He's worked on a bunch of Netflix shows you've probably seen. He also worked on my comedy special. He's the reason why you hear laughs. Not because I was funny, but because Brian might the room <laughs> so well so welcome brian thank you to christian rubel our engineer producer lucy my awesome co-host jacqueline coley oh jacqueline um we have a show next week don't we
2: yeah we do have a show next week and the one thing i will say just uh, also really quickly is i want to thank you mark for already signing yourself up to come with me to the Cannes film festival uh because i i just tweeted that i'm coming and apparently mark is going to be my plus one which is news to my dog he's not exactly (laughs) excited about it it was Mm -hmm. attack of the tweets which ah spoiler alert next week we're talking attack of the clones which i'm excited
1: attack of the clones episode two it's gonna be a hoot we will see y'all then until then rate review do all that good stuff wherever you listen to our podcast rt is wrong for everyone here at Rotten Tomatoes and our friend Joseph Scrimshaw, I'm Mark Ellis saying the force will be with you always.
3: Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented...